Today, we are beginning a new series of conversations called Stuff Christians Do. And, and over the next several weeks, we're going to dive into why we do some of the things that we do as a church. What are the things that happen here on Sunday morning when we come together? So this is a great opportunity, by the way, to invite your, your friends, your neighbors, who may be unfamiliar with some of the practices of Generations Church. And I think this is going to be an eye-opener for a lot of us who sort of have gotten used to the way that we do things around here and the things that we do during our service. What is the real power behind here? So we're going we're gonna to ask questions like, why do we take communion together? That'll be one Sunday. Uh, why do we sing songs together? What's the big deal? Why can't I just show up at 1030? Skip that part. Why, why do we practice generosity together as we just did with our offering every Sunday? Why do we have water baptism as we're going to do after the service? And what's really happening when we do these things? Are they just rituals that we perform out of habit because that's what you're, you're a church. You're supposed to like have these steps during the service. Or is there something powerful happening and maybe even culturally subversive um, happening in these practices. Now, um, a word, the most accurate, precise word in our language for these types of activities, activities is a, in a, within a church, you might hear me use on occasion, is the word liturgy uh, or liturgies, uh, which is kind of a loaded term for some people. I understand that the word liturgy has very religious overtones. And literally, liturgy just means the ceremonies and activities that the church does when it comes together. That's what, that's what the word means. It's the stuff Christians do when we come together. Um, and uh, talking with some folks, there's some folks who don't really love that term because it represents for them kind of those like mindless, repetitive formalities uh, that maybe they came out of from a church tradition in the past. Totally understand. I'm sensitive to that. But that is not what we mean when we're talking about liturgies. Um, a liturgy, we've said this before, a liturgy is no more alive or dead than the phrase, I love you, right? We've used that example before. I could say, I love you to my wife, and that phrase itself is no more alive or dead. What's, what matters is, do I mean it? Do I show it? Is there power behind what I'm saying there, right? Those words. And a lot of us would be surprised to learn, especially if you uh, are, you know, if you've been a longtime evangelical like me, that we actually engage in liturgies all the time, even if we don't call it that. Um, your daily prayer routine that hopefully you have at home is a liturgy. Coming to church on Sunday morning, if this is a, a custom for you and your family, that you come to church on Sunday morning, you know, the, even when the kids say, I don't feel like it. You say, no, it's what we do. We're hails, right? That's what we tell our kids. Um, that's a liturgy. That's, that's the stuff we do, right? It, and because it kind of forms our identity. It just forms who we are. And even more importantly, the practices we're going to talk about in this four-part series are liturgies that are commanded by Scripture for believers, so they're not optional. And liturgies help form who we are. They help identify us also, uh, like the group we belong to. And so there are church liturgies. There's also secular liturgies, right? There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, liturgies that if you, anybody ever go to an Astros game? Anybody here ever go to Minute Maid Park, right? What, right before the game, there's going to be some local hero who goes out and pitches the ball, that first pitch. They're probably going to pitch it badly, right? It's going to bounce a few times. That, that's kind of part of that's the, you know, the, the sort of corporate liturgy of there, right? In the seventh inning, you're going to have the seventh inning stretch. You're all going to stand up and sing deep in the heart of Texas. That's right. That's part of it. And then the most important liturgy of all, I mean, for some people, it's more sacred than the Bible, is right before the game, you're going to stand up and sing the 
national anthem, right? And you just, if you don't think that is a liturgy, just look at the dirty looks you get if you don't stand up, right? That is a, it is a sacred liturgy. Um, and so, but not all liturgies are good. Not all liturgies are good. Some of them represent uh, something that Christ has delivered us from and represents a bondage that he's freed us from. In, in our country, there is a, a liturgy of uh, consumerism, a liturgy of greed and overindulgence. There's a worship of violence and sex and indulging in the right to engage in those things that, in ways that are unbiblical. Um, there's a liturgy for some people, uh, social media, right? It is a daily habitual thing that they do, and that can lead to unhealthy self-image self and comparison and unhealthy attitudes about your fellow man. So we're surrounded by liturgies, which is why from the very beginning, God, who's just so brilliant because he wired us, he knows how we're wired, he created us, he knows how our identity is formed. So from the beginning, God has planted in his people and in the gatherings of his people several specific communal practices that are very spiritually formative to us, but they're also highly subversive declarations, I believe, uh, against some of those antichrist customs of the world. When we gather together on Sunday morning with other believers, what we're doing here is very, very important. And today we're going to be looking at water baptism. Now, of course, like I said, we're not even going to talk about it, not just going to talk about it, we're also going to do them uh, after, we're going to perform baptism after the service. We have some folks who are already signed up to do that, and everybody is welcome to stay and like celebrate with us as we do those things. Listen, over the course of the, the message this morning, I'm going to be talking fast, but if you feel impressed, you just feel drawn by the Holy Spirit, you want to, you want to dive in and be a part of that, feel free to. You, as spoiler alert, you will get wet um, so either have somebody run home and grab you a change of clothes or just be prepared to get into your car a little soggy. Uh, but anyway, all right. So let's talk about, let's talk about baptism. Why water baptism? You ever ask yourself this? Why do we water baptize? And what's really going on there? Because, um, we know that Jesus saves us, right? By grace through faith. So where does water baptism fit into that whole thing? It can be an awkward conversation for some folks. So we're going to start in Genesis because there's a whole set of images that are woven throughout the Old Testament that get packaged into the life of Jesus that we want to explore to kind of appreciate where this came from. You guys ready? All right, here we go. You can talk back to me. It's cool. All right, Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty darkness over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the Waters, thank you. Now, what's fascinating in Genesis is waters, throughout the book of Genesis, waters play a part. It's almost like a character in the story, the waters, because in the first three days of creation, God begins by separating stuff. He begins, he separates light from dark. He separates the waters above from the waters below. Then he separates uh, the, the land from the sea. And, and God is basically, he's creating order out of chaos in all of this. And you you get this picture of land emerging where new life is going to be found on it. And, and the sea, we've mentioned this before, in a lot of Old Testament writings, the, the sea op often represents chaos. It represents that, that realm where humans are out of their element. The sea was that place where you're not in control. It was kind of a scary place. And, and so we get that picture carried forward. You, you, it's where you have relinquished control. You are no longer, you know, in control. In Genesis 3, of course, what happens? Human beings, through their disobedience, they unleash sin and chaos into the world. Later, uh, we get the flood account in chapter 7. And God, it's so interesting, God 
almost engages in an act of uncreation in, in the flood, where waters swell up and, and recover the land. You know, he had separated them in Genesis 1. Or just, yeah, and so now he's recovered the land. So it's almost a reversal of the Genesis 1 creation account. In the story of Noah and the ark, God selects a family, uh, a remnant that he's going to rescue from the waters and through the waters. So you get this image really early of the story of the water as a character and God's salvation of a family through the water. All right. Actually, this comes back over and over again throughout the Old Testament story. So in the beginning of the book of Exodus, if you get, go to Exodus, you see in the beginning, we meet Moses, who was a man who was uh, in an ark and coincidentally enough, delivered from the water. He eventually delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt. You know the story. He brings them to the very edge of the Red Sea. He stretches out his hand in that great, you know, Charlton Heston moment, stretches out the rod and the waters part. And what happens? They, they go through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and to their left. So Genesis 1, we have land emerges from the sea. Genesis 7, the sweet sea sweeps back over the land. Uh, and, and, but God saves a righteous family from the waters. He carries them through the waters. And then as God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt, the waters part, they walk through the land. Now this image reappears in the book of Joshua. This is still kind of part of the Exodus story. But now we're in the book of Joshua. 40 years later, Moses has been leading the people for 40 years through the wilderness, but now he has died. Joshua has taken over and they're right on the border of the promised land at the Jordan River. Of course, there's no, they don't have any boats or bridges to cross over. And so God is going to show up miraculously there in a way that kind of recalls earlier parts of the story. It says they walk right up to the edge. The, the feet of the priests touch the water. And it says that the, the water from upstream stopped flowing until the people crossed over on dry land. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's Exodus. So now, so all of this is background, okay? And it's just fascinating. I can see it in your faces. I feel the energy. This is wonderful, Scott. Give us more background. No, okay. 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 Um, this image of water and, and delivering through water or from water, it becomes the basis of a practice that the ancient Jews engage in as their, their religion develops into baptism. Baptism. And the word baptize uh, just means literally to be immersed. And uh, they had different ways of baptizing. There were different reasons for baptizing as part of their liturgies. Um, uh, the, some baptism was an expression of what was called mikvah, and it was kind of a cleansing baptism. This was, uh, you would undergo this. There was also a baptism where they would have, that they would, uh, Gentiles would go through, non-Jewish people, if they wanted to live in Israel, you know, and or, or identify with and sort of uh, stand in solidarity with the Jewish people and be known as what they called God-fearers. They would undergo go this sort of mikvah uh, baptism. But the whole water imagery got packaged into this practice. And in some cases, in some of the Jewish practices, they would have the water dumped on top of their head. And sometimes they would immerse themselves in what they called living water. That just meant water that flowed. It was like, like a river. It moved. Um, and so any of this makes sense so far? Okay, you're with me. So all of this is background now to when John the Baptist, he was the baptizer, he shows up. And John the Baptist in the New Testament, his ministry involves inviting Jews to undergo baptism. But he does it really differently. He's, he's kind of like putting a twist on everything. So really early in the book of Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, we read about John calling people out into the wilderness to confess their sins and be baptized by him in the 
Jordan River. Is that a callback? Yes. Yes, it is. So if you were Jewish, you thought that your, your right standing with God consisted in you simply being Jewish, right? That made you right with God. The fact that you were ethnically Jewish was enough for God's approval. And John the Baptist, he comes out of the wilderness like Ezekiel did, and he invites people to come back to the Jordan River, which was for the, for the people, that was the river that, you know, they recalled. That was where they crossed to get into the promised land for the first time. And he calls them back to the Jordan to be baptized and symbolizing that their Jewishness wasn't enough. They had to repent of the sins of Israel to embrace uh, this new thing that God was doing through the Messiah. Remember, John was called to announce the Messiah and to do the baptism of repentance. So this is a big deal that John the Baptist did this. And it was real controversial, of course, with all the religious authorities, because many of the Jews were like, we don't have to be baptized. We don't need to be baptized. That's what outsiders do to join us. But this was a baptism of repentance. As you went into the Jordan River and you came out, it was a picture of that long ago event when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the promised land as God's favored people. Then Jesus shows up on the scene. Okay, now something new is happening. He undergoes this baptism. He asks John to baptize him. And John's kind of surprised because Jesus isn't sinful. And he doesn't do the baptism because he's sinful, but because he stands in solidarity with Israel as its representative, as the Messiah of Israel. And so in the book of Mark, we read Jesus being baptized. Uh, Verse 9, it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, that's a callback to Joshua. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, that phrase is a callback to the Exodus narrative. He saw heaven being torn open. That's a callback to Genesis. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. That's a callback to the flood, right? The animal that Noah uh, released to see if there was any dry land. So all of that, do you see how that's, it's like a rehearsal of this imagery that we just went through and looked at a few minutes ago. So this would have, for the people witnessing all of this, would have brought to mind for the people all of these, these Old Testament events standing around as Jesus did this. And then it says, and then a voice from heaven said, you are my son. And oh my goodness, that is so chocked full of meaning. It's right out of Psalms chapter two. We don't have time to go all into it, but so beautiful. Whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus, of course, he does his Jesus thing, right? He heals, he preaches, he teaches, he calls disciples, he sends them. And then very famously at the end of the book of Matthew, he says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Go make more disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? Well, simple. He says, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then you teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Now, the early church So then we get to the book of Acts and on, the early church in obedience to Jesus and his example and and his command, the church began to practice, of course, baptism. But even they, they did it differently than how the Jews did it. So they did it in a very Jesus-focused way. Does that make sense? So in Romans chapter 6, Paul, he pictures for us what it is that baptism symbolizes. In chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Uh, Shall we go on sinning because we're forgiven so that grace may increase? That is the question, by the way, every teenager in youth group has always asked at least once. 
By no means, Paul says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in any, in any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father who may live a new life. Okay, so all throughout the story, there are these images of water, salvation through the water and from the water, and this picture of coming through water and standing in newness, something being different, right, when it's all done. And now what the New Testament Christians have done is they've taken this ancient ritual and they have turned it into, brilliantly, a picture of what Jesus has done for us. And I'll just say this by way of disclaimer, all right? Christians disagree about all of this, okay? All right, like, can you be baptized as an infant? Should, it, should you be an adult? Can you be baptized as a, as a child? Can it be the whole household? Because we see a picture of that in the New Testament. Should you be sprinkled? Should you be dunked once? Should it be done three times? Should it be dunked three times? That's the way the Mennonites do it. Uh, should, you be, should it be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just in the name of Jesus? We see both ways in the New Testament. Can you get baptized in a swimming pool? Or does it have to be flowing living waters, right? You have to go to a river. Uh, I mean, as good Protestants, we protest every way except our own. That's just like our job as Protestants. We protest all other ways. And really, it's just silly. Um, it's kind of silly because literally the instructions we're given are those that we've already seen. That was it, right? And you can find all sorts of precedents for other ways of doing it. They're all based, even the ways that, you know, you might think, nah, that's not the way you're supposed to it. Those are actually based on some biblical thing that they did, um, but it's just not the way we do it. And, and there was an early church document, um, our friend Jeremy turned me on to it. It's called the, the Didache, and it's like from the first century, first or second century, very, very early, and it's this priceless document they, they uncovered that lists like real uh, practical examples of like instructions to church, like how to have church. I mean, it's like this really cool bulletin you pull out that we got from the second century of how they did church back then. And it spells out instructions. And one of the instructions say, uh, baptize by immersion if possible, if there's somewhere to baptize and dunk all the way. But if there's not anywhere, then pour the water over the head three times. That's the earliest church. That's the earliest document we have of, of, of the church. So it's amazing. Uh, the point is, baptism isn't what rescues us, Amen. right? Water didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus Amen. did. So, so baptism is the image of what it is that we have done in our union with Jesus, right? I'll tell you something else. Baptism in the early church, when you see some of the, you read some of the other uh, historical accounts of the early church, baptism was so important. It wasn't just sort of a, a side thing. You could sort of do if you want to or not. It was the way that they publicly professed their, their faith. You know, there's a scripture that says, if you confess me, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before God. And in the New Testament, we don't actually see kind of the, the way we sort of do it a lot now, sort of like the altar call, you know, repeat after me and we'll say the prayer. We don't exactly see that in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with it. What they would do as that confession before men, that was baptism. That was their brave declaration to the world. I'm in. I'm part of this tribe. And having done that, you couldn't just say, well, no, I thought good thoughts. They, you know, the world witnessed you getting into the water and getting out of the water. So that was a very brave, very dangerous thing to do for those people. Now, what are we saying when we do baptism? 
What is the, the metaphor? What are we saying? What is the symbolism for us today? And we're going to take immersion as the example because that's the way we do it. It's the act, for us, it's the act of somebody going into the water, which is joining in the death of Jesus. And how did Jesus die? Jesus died, just look at his character, he died socially shamed. He allowed himself to be shamed. He died having every right, every authority, uh, every, er, the, 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 the authority and the power of God at his fingertips. He was God enfleshed, and he uses none of those privileges, none of those entitlements, but he pours himself out for the sake of other people. And so he blessed, he even blessed people who were crucifying him in the moment, in the moment he crucifies, he forgives them. He asks the Father to forgive them. That's how Jesus died. And he denounced power. He denounced violence. That's how he died. So we go in the water. and We're, we're symbolizing our uh, identification with that way of life. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus into death. Not just that Jesus died for us that way, but that I am joining him in that manner of living. I'm going to join that way of living. That my old self, my need to exert my will and my power and my importance, my need I'm all to satisfy all my cravings of my old man, that self is buried. I'm burying that self. As, as Paul will say in another letter, the old is gone, the new has come. Even if we don't always feel like it. Sometimes you feel like the old, old man's creeping back up. But you look back to that act. You say, no, I remember that moment. The old is gone. The new is come. And then as you come out of the water, what is that? As you come out of the water, you are identifying with new creation at that point. We talked a lot about that in, on Easter Sunday. New creation. And you are invited into an entirely new way of living. Freedom from that old man, freedom from those old cravings and those old urges, freedom from our sins. And we're, we're welcomed into the way of reconciliation. We're told in the Bible that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's the way of peace, the way of enemy love. We don't like to hear that, but it's true. The way of mercy, the way of compassion, the way of justice and generosity. All the things that Jesus did we now identify with those things. That's part of our new life as we come out of that water. Now, that means for us that baptism, it's an awesome celebration, but it's not just a celebration. It is also a very countercultural declaration uh, against the ways of this world. We are putting ourselves on the line. It's something that challenges the lies of this age that we are just immersed in, that we swim in today. And, and I want to go over real quick just two ways that baptism subverts our, our modern cultural practices, or you might say our, our secular liturgies. The first way is baptism challenges our individualism. This is a big one. Baptism challenges our individualism. To be baptized... It isn't just to have a relationship with you and Jesus. Uh, when you were baptized, it says you were baptized into Christ. And we were baptized, another place says you were baptized into the family of God. So to be baptized is now to be, it's not just about you and Jesus. It's about you now being a member and a, a citizen of an entirely new community. And my new identity isn't, hey, everybody, I'm Scott. No, my new identity is, hey, I am a part of this 
community of believers, this body of Christ in the world, I'm a part of it. So baptism is the statement that I'm no longer alone. I no longer walk alone. Nobody in this community walks alone. It's why the New Testament uses the picture of family so often, right? Like, so one of the ways that we can sort of conceive of this is that we are just this big, weird family around a a really big table, and we've got all the weird aunts and uncles that every family has, right? The awkward holiday conversations that we have. Yeah, that's part of church too, but we're family, and so here in this community of the church, we share bread and we share the cup and we, we share baptism and prayer and joy and lament and all these things and we sing songs and we do it as, we do it as siblings. We do not do it as consumers. On Thanksgiving Day, you don't pick whose family has the best Thanksgiving, do you? You don't go, because you don't approach Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter dinner like a consumer. You do it like family, Right? You're stuck with your family. That's it. Yep. It's, it family is the, the friends you don't get to choose, right? <laughs> That's it. That's some, to reverse, yeah. So baptism reminds us that we don't just see ourselves as me and Jesus kind of people. You know, Jesus never uses that language, ever, Amen. like ever. Jesus never uses that, nor does Paul. Paul is always using the southern y'all, right? <laughs> In all of the scriptures, all of his letters, he doesn't say, you, you precious, individual, unique snowflake of a Christian, put on the armor of God. No, no, no. He says, y'all put on the armor of God. Y'all put on the armor of God. It's, it, 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 he says, hey, y'all, pray, right? Hey, y'all, be reconciled to one another because it is in community that has found our security and the power and authority. It's in community. And, and I get it. This is challenging to kind of our American ethos. Because uh, as an American, I can say, maybe above all cultures in the world that I have ever run across, we may be the most radically individualistic in what we prize, right? We just, that's just, that's just how, we're, how we're made, is how we're born. And so baptism is a way that we shed that need to be seen and, and celebrated primarily as me. We shed that. We join the community. We join the community that celebrates the one individual worth celebrating, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's who we celebrate. Secondly, baptism totally reshapes our identity. It reshapes our identity. As I said, in the first century, being baptized in the name of Jesus was so subversive. It was a dangerous act for them. Once you were baptized, you did that publicly. You can't pretend you didn't do it. You can't undo it, right? And that sets you up for being persecuted, arrested, drug out of your house, even crucified. I mean, that's, that's how subversive it was. And it went, one of the things that just made the rest of culture so mad about Christians was it went against everything that Roman, even and Jewish culture taught about how you're supposed to see yourself and who you were supposed to hang out with. It's a fascinating thing. Being baptized for Christians back then meant you were identifying with people you were not supposed to mix with, right? And that was a big deal for them, sharing a meal with people as equals. Now, again, to us, that's, that doesn't seem like a big deal because we're an egalitarian culture, you know, ideally at our best. But for them, this was resistance. I mean, this was a political statement. It wasn't just people being nice to each other. This was like a political act of defiance. And so what baptism is, is it takes all of the ways 
that you and I could possibly identify ourselves or be divided against each other, and it evaporates them under one heading, I once was lost and now I'm found. That's it. And the Apostle Paul, what he sees baptism as doing is it brings us all, the high and the low and the lowly and the mighty, it brings us all into family as equals, as siblings, brothers and sisters. And so all those status divisions are rendered, rendered obsolete, obsolete. Now, we still are who we are. We still are who we are. So the things that make you unique or your personality, you don't lose your personality. Um, you know, you, whatever makes you one of a kind, your cultural heritage, whatever, that still exists. But now in baptism, those categories don't matter as the most important thing here in this family. They're not the most important thing. The most important identifier of you and me is brother and sister. That becomes the most important thing, brother and sister. And yeah, we can disagree about lots of different stuff, uh, political ways of running the world, the role of government. We can disagree about vaccines and immigration and taxes and all kinds of different things that the media demands we form an opinion about. But that is not the primary way that the church of God distinguishes itself. So I consider you guys my brothers and sisters. You're my brothers and sisters. And some of you, I know, from talking to you have political leanings to the left and some of you have political leanings to the right and uh, that's the beauty of the church Amen. it is it's a bunch of people who outside of church outside of being united in Christ may have very little reason to hang out right there may be people here like if it weren't for Christ, being Christians we might not ever even hang out at all we might not even speak to each other right but see we have undergone this this naturalization and citizenship ceremony in the water and now we sit in companionship with each other even though we don't all agree and that's the beauty of it that we're that's what we're fighting for and actually it is the witnessing power of the church that is what happens when we don't all agree. That's a power that witnesses to the world. Jesus formed a, a band of brothers and sisters and his disciples and the people who were following him. He, he formed them from all different backgrounds. And when they came, when Jesus said, follow me, all those different disciples, they came from, oh, we've talked about you know, all the different backgrounds and political persuasions. They all had different political ideas of what to do about the Roman problem, right? But they came and he united them under one cause, the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven. And we're to do the same thing today. We gather together to rehearse what the kingdom looks like lived out. That's what we do every Sunday. And baptism reminds us what the, what the job description looks like, identifying with his death and identifying with his life. There you go. Put off old creation. Put on the new man. Put off the old present age and embrace new creation. And the way we do that is by following the example of Jesus. And so today I want to in invite you to come and celebrate with us. If you want to participate with us, absolutely you can. If you're not able to participate and get baptized today, maybe you're a Christian who's never been baptized or you're someone today you just feel like, yeah, I want to join this Jesus movement. This is pretty cool. Uh, and, and maybe you're not able to today. Uh, well, there'll be more opportunities in the coming months, but we do want you to do this. We want you to do this, not because it's the thing that saves us. Baptism doesn't save us. What baptism is, is the thing that stands for who saves us. It points us 
toward what we are now saved into. We are now saved into the body of Christ, a whole new community. Amen. So for the next several weeks, we're going to... Um, we're going to have these kind of conversations because, the, guys, uh, these, uh, these re- the things that we're talking about, these practices, they're not just religious theories, right? They're not just sort of dead rituals. Not at all. This stuff is radically formative. The stuff Christians do, what we do here. Today, let me just close in prayer. Would you bow your head with me? Hallelujah. Lord Jesus. Father, I, I am just so delighted to be a part of your family. Lord, I find you so compelling. I do. I I, I get so lost sometimes in my head and all the noise that we all experience out here in this world. And then there's these moments that are so crystal clear about your goodness and who you are and what you've invited us into. And so I pray, Lord God, I pray as always that God, you would help us be a cross-shaped community a Jesus-focused community that is helping each other become more like Jesus. May we embody more and more just the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. So Lord, help us, form us willingly. Now, Lord God, we open ourselves up. We ask, Lord, that you would use this message and partner with us to shape us into the people who look more and more like Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can stand to your feet if you would. Our prayer partners are coming forward right now. If there's anything you need prayer about, uh, these prayer partners would just love to pray with you and stand with you in faith about whatever it is. Whatever it is you need from the Lord, he is here to meet your needs. He is so good. He is so good. And we're, like I said, we're going to be celebrating over here. If you are participating, if you're getting baptized today, just meet us over here near the baptismal. We'll give you some extra instructions. If you're here to just celebrate with your friends and family getting baptized, just come on over here too. If you are going to, uh, if you're, otherwise, if you're in here, uh, just be sensitive to that and respectful of what's going on over there. We love you guys. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.